1: You're listening to the Reinvention Project with Jim Rome podcast. Welcome to episode 75 of the Reinvention Project with Jim Rome, what's good? As always, thanks a million for finding the time to listen to this podcast. I know you've got a million choices when it comes to content consumption, so I'm extremely motivated to make sure that I create value for you and I want this to be a destination stop. Per usual, I've got a tremendous conversation with a world-class guest that I'm anxious to share with you, and I will. But first, I want to talk to you for a minute about some things that I've been thinking about of late. In fact, I've been thinking quite a bit about this of late. Now, our last episode here was the commencement speech that I gave to the School of Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Wisconsin-Madison this past summer. One of the main points that I hammered home in that speech was that I figured out pretty early in my journey— How to reverse engineer my life. Now, I had never heard that phrase before, but that was my strategy. I knew who I was, who I wanted to be, and then it was just a matter of figuring out how to get there. Now, of course, that did not happen overnight. I would even argue that it didn't take years because I would argue that obviously it is still going on right now. It's an ongoing process. What we're talking about here is self-actualization and becoming the very best version of yourself. And you never stop chasing that ideal, right? So as part of trying to reverse engineer my life and become the best version of myself, I employed a strategy back then that I am once again employing right now as I enter the next phase of my life. Strategy being this. I ask myself two simple questions. What's your why and why you? What's your why and why you? So when I was in college, I could see my why pretty clearly. But in the beginning, I didn't know exactly how I was going to achieve it. As for my why, well, you know, as I've grown older, of course, my why has changed and evolved. But while in college, I had an obsession and a singular focus. The thing that got me out of bed every single morning and had me pushing myself as hard as I could every single day was to become a sportscaster on the national level. Now, maybe I couldn't play in the major leagues, but I could work in the major leagues or in this case, the top of the broadcast field. That was my Super Bowl. That was my why. And it was a strong why. I went hard every single day. All day, no days off. That's what got me out of bed early on. That's what got me working and had me working late into the night. Pretty much every night. But, and this is key, I also knew that while I had a strong why, which was important, it was not enough. Other folks that I was competing with, also had strong whys, which brought me to my second stage. Why you? Why you? If you share a similar why to those that you're competing with, why you? Why you and not them? Why are you different? What's your separation? And again, initially, I didn't think I was different. I didn't think I was that different or better or smarter or more talented or better looking or better sounding. So again, why you? I would ask myself, if you're no better than anybody else, what do you really have to bring to it that's going to enable you to win? And the answer did not present itself at first. But as time went on, it began to reveal itself. I didn't have a goal that I was chasing. I had an obsession. I wasn't pursuing a certain career path. I was on a mission. I didn't have a curiosity or an interest. I had an enormous chip on my shoulder and a fire burning in my gut, and I was dumping gasoline on it on the daily, and it was growing into an inferno that was guiding my every decision and pushing me to take consistent daily action, daily actions that were consistent with my mission. In short... I still fully believed that I was not better, I was not smarter, I was not more talented. I didn't really have any edge in the way I looked or sounded. But here is what else I discovered. Nobody around me wanted it as badly as I did. No one was willing to pay the price that I was. Nobody approached it with the missionary zeal that I did. So I developed an ethos or a personal culture or a code that I would live by. In other words... I asked myself what my separation was, and then I developed a code. I implemented the code. I lived by the code. My separation was going to be in the code. My separation was going to be in the following. I would clearly define my mission. I would become obsessed and consumed by that mission. And it was not a part-time thing. It was an everyday thing. Every day, every hour, every moment. I would also develop a monster work ethic. Nobody would ever outwork me, ever. I would develop extreme discipline in all things. I would delay immediate gratification if it was not consistent with the mission, and I would work on my mind as much as I worked on my craft. That was so critical. It still is, so critical. I would work on my mind as much as I would work on my craft. I knew I was entering a fiercely competitive field, a field of rejection, and that if I just shut down after getting the door slammed in my face a couple of times, it wouldn't matter how prepared or how talented I was, so I cultivated an elite mindset, a mindset of relentlessness, mental toughness, enthusiasm, and a deep-seated belief in myself. I believe deeply that you become your thoughts. I rewired my brain with thoughts of positivity, resiliency, grind, and I visualized deeply what I wanted to become, what it would look like, what it would feel like. I was training my mind, my body, and my spirit for this life, and not for a job, not for a job, but for my entire identity. In other words, it was not a career. It was a lifestyle. It was an identity. I found separation in complete ownership as well. I would assume ownership of my entire life and my career completely and never blame anybody for anything. It was all on me. I would not complain. I would not gossip. I would not talk shit about others in the business because none of that would move me forward. And most of all, I found separation in knowing there were no hacks, there were no shortcuts, there were no magic pills, just grind, heart, determination, and a fierce desire to win. My separation then was going to be in all the intangibles, the margins, the willingness to get up before everybody else, stay up later than everybody else, clearly define my mission, commit to it, and to what undoubtedly would become a war of attrition. Because even if they were better than me, quote, better than me, they didn't want it as badly as I did, and they would drop out when it didn't happen as quickly as they wanted it to. Saw that time and time again. And the fact is, it worked. It worked. So I'm sorry to say, no new technology for me to point to, no new scientific discovery, just a common dude... With an uncommon desire to get ahead and the ability to consistently hammer away day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Consistency wins. And knowing that everything good is on the other side of hard wins. Yeah, I know. Great story, Rome. Great story. Now what? What about going forward? Right. I get that. Fair question. Now what? What's my why now? Now, my why is to prove that hitting your 50s does not mean you have to shut it down. In fact, in my case, it means I have to double down. My why now is to show that the best 25 years of my life are in front of me and not behind me, that my best work is in front of me and not behind me, that I can reinvent myself and my brand and prove to myself and everybody else I'm as hungry as I've ever been, I'm more competitive than I've ever been, and I am desperate to create new things and thrive in a challenging and changing environment. I'm not a freaking dinosaur. I haven't had my time. There are still things I need and want to accomplish. My why now is to prove to myself and my supporters and my detractors that my best is, in fact, in front of me and not behind me. And in terms of why me, why me? Because I hit a giant reset button on my life. I have chosen the day one, not one day philosophy. And it's day one every freaking day. And I am now embracing everything, the good, the bad. I'm attacking every single show, every single interview, every single business opportunity as if it might be my last because nothing is promised. It might be my last. It could be. And finally, I'm attacking it with the knowledge that nobody is coming to save me. Nobody is coming to me with a business plan. That book is not going to write itself. We are on the freaking clock. We have already wasted too much time. So it's getting cold again, and I've got a tremendous way to stay warm. Two words, heat holders. Heat holders. Heat holders make the warmest thermal socks around. They keep your feet warmer than just ordinary socks in the coldest conditions. Perfect for those winter sports like skiing or weekend in the coldest parts of Wisconsin, for instance. How do they do it heat holders uses a three-stage process with a cashmere like advanced insulating yarn that is soft to the touch and brushed on the inside that traps warm air closer to your skin. It keeps your feet warmer, comfortable, and dry. They are absolutely the softest, most comfortable socks I've ever worn. Guaranteed. They also have hats, gloves, throws, scarves, and more. Give somebody heat holders for the holidays that you know need these badly. They will appreciate the hookup and your discovery. Go to heatholders.com, enter my code Rome R-O-M-E, and save 15% off your order. Receive free shipping with a purchase of $25 or more. If you don't want to freeze this winter, go to heatholders.com and use the code Rome Once again, that's heatholders.com, heat holders, making life warmer. Again, one day or day one. You can wait if you want until one day. Me, it's day one, baby. Get to fucking work. Let's go. Regret is a horrible thing. I do have regrets. I do. I don't want any new ones. It's go time. What's your why and why you? What's your why and why you? So now I'm anxious to get to this episode's conversation. Many of you may already know my guest, and if you don't, I am pumped to introduce him to you as this conversation is packed with insight and strategies on how to become a better leader, how to develop a stronger mindset in both yourself and the most important people around you, and to make them hungrier, and how to create energy, all important things. My guest is a best-selling author, he is a sought-out speaker, he's a consultant, he is one of the founders of The Table Group, he is Patrick Lencioni. I know you're going to love this conversation and it's coming at you right now, episode 75 of The Reinvention Project, check it. So, Patrick, I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. I am pumped that you and I could finally come together. It is great to meet you, Patrick. How are you doing? I'm
0: doing great. It's great to talk to you, Jim. I've listened to you for many years, and I'm excited. I love when I get to talk about sports.
1: Awesome. All right, then. Let me ask you this, though. Before we do that, I want to ask you something. Like, I started this podcast with the premise that I wanted to reinvent myself top to bottom Personally, professionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, and I want to ensure that despite Patrick being in my 50s, that my best years professionally and personally were actually in front of me and not behind me, that I had not yet done my best work. But I wondered if, if in fact, that was possible. So I began this journey. You tell this amazing story about an 80-year-old woman who cold-called this great real estate company you work with. Can you start us off with that story, if you don't mind? Because I think it's a great tone setter, regardless of age.
0: Yeah. You know, there's a guy named Brian Buffini that in San Diego area who does real estate stuff. Great guy. And um, he had a, an 80-year-old woman come to him and say, I want to put together my 20-year plan. And, and he was like, okay, because they would do 20-year plans for people in the real estate business and everything else. And they worked the plan with her and she is crushing it. She's eight, she's 94 now, and she's still going. And I think that You know, God knows what we're going to be doing in our lives and he he saves some of the best things that we can do for the end and we should never give up. And we just have no idea what that's going to be. And um, and so I think the other thing that keeps us in there and keeps us healthy and interested is when we continue to have goals. And, you know, I'm 58. I've done a lot of different things. I'm more excited about my work now and about my family now and about other things I'm doing in my faith than I ever was when I was younger. And, and yet, th- th- we have this universal desire not to get older, and yet so many... Th- times the the treasures in our lives are waiting for us. So I think our perspective is everything.
1: All right. So two things right there. I love the fact that there was an 80-year-old woman who had a 25-year plan. And I love the fact you and I are the same age. So I love the fact that at that age, you feel better right now and more energized and with more purpose than ever before. Now you have a podcast and your podcast is called The Working Genius Podcast. What do you mean by our quote, working genius
0: Well, here's an interesting thing, Jim. I've been working for 27 years in my company, and I wrote a a bunch of different books, one called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team and other things, and people said, okay, those are your best books. Well, three years ago, I came up with this concept called working genius, and it was because I was frustrated in my own job, and I came up with this concept around the six kinds of work that people have to do, and that all of us are meant to do two of them because we love them, and two of them we hate, and two of them are in the middle, and so I, I came up with this idea, and people said, There's something here. We launched a new assessment, and that became the working genius. And now we have a podcast, and we have almost a million people around the country who are using this already to understand what they're good at and what they suck at. <laughs> because we all suck at some things, and we're all great at some things. And if we're doing the things that we're meant to do, we're going to be successful and joyful and make the world better. And if we're doing the things we're not meant to do, we're going to go home and kick the dog and treat our families poorly and, and probably live a life less than we're, we're meant to. So the six types of working genius, which the podcast is based on, is just about figuring out your God-given talents and leaning into those.
1: All right. I was going to say, so you lean into the things that you're really good at. Let me ask you this. I would assume then, does everybody have a genius, Patrick? And if they don't know what it is, how do they find it? Yes.
0: Everybody's got two. Now, some people have gone years without using it. Um, the, the way to find it, there's, there's a 10-minute assessment that we have. And you go to workinggenius.com, workinggenius.com. And, and it takes 12 minutes. And then it sends you a report, a very robust way to understand all these things. And every single person has geniuses. The question is, are you living in those? And none of us can live in there 100% of the time, but we're not, I I really don't think God put us on earth to live in our frustrations. Those are the two that we hate. And so many people will take this and say, oh my gosh, I've been in the wrong job, or I can adjust what I do, or my wife and I have been so frustrated for years because we didn't understand what we were meant to be doing. And so the, the insights, whether you're a college student, just getting started, or whether you're retiring and trying to decide what kind of work to do after you retire, or whether you're in the middle of your career and you're wondering why you're not happier, the insights come right away in the report.
1: All right, so I want to backtrack to some of this in a minute. This is really interesting, but you've mentioned a couple of times about possibly being in a job that you don't like or you're frustrated. Betting on yourself in business can be highly rewarding, but obviously it comes with great risk. Risk being, you do not have that steady paycheck that you had in the corporate world. You did this very thing yourself. I'm curious though, how tempted were you personally to accept a job offer from Apple's legendary co-founder Steve Jobs when he wanted you to join him at Pixar. You know, it's so, I was just telling somebody about this today.
0: I don't talk about it a lot, but so he offered me the job and I realized that I really didn't want to do that task. He wanted me to run human resources. And I liked part of that, but there's part of it I didn't like at all. And I thought, but it's at Pixar. It's cool. And it's for Steve jobs. And, and I thought, no, I want to do what I really love to do, which is to come up with new ideas around leadership and management. And I want to write about that. I want to speak about that. I want to help people do that. So at the time it was tempting, but it would only have been for security and for what other people would say. And so I felt like I had to do the very thing that every morning when I woke up, I would be excited to go to work. And I have been for 27 years. And um, I'm really grateful to God that I did that. And my dad was saying like, hey Pat, what are you doing? You have benefits. You would have a, this, you know, it's so easy to want safety, but when safety comes at the expense of passion, Um, it's,
1: it's, it's a really, it's a real expensive trade-off. That's gold. That's gold. I love that. I love also that you admitted that, Hey, why would I really be doing that only for security and only for optics and only for what other people would say, Patrick, you mentioned leadership. So what, so what does it take to be a great leader? And secondarily, if somebody is starting off or somebody wants to become a great leader, where should they start? Okay, I love this question, Jim, because I would work I was working on on leadership
0: for 20 something years, and I realized one day that some people couldn't possibly use all the stuff that I was I was writing about and speaking about if they were lacking one thing. And that's the proper motive for becoming a leader, because, you know, Jim, how people will go on uh, at a graduation speech and they'll they'll say, everybody, you're going to graduate from college, you should go out and be a leader. And I always want to say, no, don't do it if you're doing it for optics or for power or for to be famous, do it if you have the right motive and the right motive for wanting to be a leader is because it's a responsibility to serve others. The wrong motive is because it's a reward that I will look good. I'll make good money. I'll get to do what I want. It'll be cool. I'll be famous. And the Silicon Valley and other companies are full of people that are leading for the wrong reasons. And you can see that they cause a lot of pain. A person should say, I'll be a leader. But I'm gonna do it because I'm gonna put others before me and it's my job to serve them, and that's a responsibility and a burden at times. And if you're willing to take that on, then being a leader, so it really what it takes is humility at the deepest level. Mm. Is it am I humble enough to put myself second to the people that I, I serve
1: and lead them to success? Regardless of what it does for me. all right, so that's so interesting. Sorry to jump in there. I was gonna I was just so into that point that you were making. I'm gonna say something right now, Patrick, and I've got my team. they're here they're listening, they're on the other side of the glass and I will own this and I'm sure they will agree with this, but I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of this and I know I have to improve in this area area. but how often do you encounter leaders who under communicate and what are the types of problems that arise as a result? Okay. So first of all, when you said it's a sign of humility that you said you struggle
0: with this because nobody is born one way or the other. In fact, a lot of people go into leadership for the right reasons and then they slip. I've done it and I start to do it about me. And then I think, wait, what am I doing? So good for you for saying that that it's hard. Some, so many people have read my book and said, hey, wait, that's me. I want to change the way I lead. And under communication is, 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 is a function of a variety of things. One, it might be that you just assume people get things and it's it, you feel embarrassed to repeat yourself. I like to say that the best CEOs in the world are CROs, their chief reminding officers. And so many people think, I don't want to insult my audience. I already told them twice. And research shows people have to hear things like seven times before they believe it. So don't be too hard on yourself if you under communicate. It's, it's par for the course And it's one of those things we have to
1: learn. Even when we're bored with saying something, we got to go communicate it again and again. All right. So that said, then, if they need to hear it seven times, is there any fear or danger in over communicating? I have a great answer for you on this.
0: No, (laughs) nobody ever left a job. Because they said, my boss told me too much about what was going on. Nobody ever got frustrated in a relationship because somebody told them they loved them too much. And we're always so worried about over-communicating. The thing is, it's really hard to do. And I guess until until we start seeing an exodus from the job market of people that like, my CEO tells me too often about how important what I do is and what we're working on, it's 99% of the time the problem is under-communication. So I would say nobody should worry about over-communication. It's just it's just so it's, it's kind of like I talk about conflict in the workplace. Most of the there's too little con, real good conflict in the workplace, too, too little arguing and debating. And so people go, well, what happens if we argue too much? And I'm saying, well, let me know when you get there, because almost every team I work with doesn't really argue well. And as a result, they go out in the parking lot and they talk about each other behind their back when what they ought to do is confront one another. And that just
1: doesn't happen. Really interesting. Let me sidebar for a minute. Like, the thing I like about this podcast for me is I'm not doing what I do all day long, every single day, and that's talking sports. Now, I bring other people on this podcast and say, hey, you know what I like about this podcast? I get to talk sports. So, why don't we meet in the middle right here for a minute? We're talking about leadership, and I talk to coaches every day, all day, and I have for decades. When you look around, regardless of sport, who are some of the coaches? or managers that, that strike you as really good leaders? Okay, first of all, I love what you said, because what I
0: like to do is talk about sports as it pertains to life. Yeah. And and I think that's what you're doing. And that's interesting to me because so many people look at sports and they draw analogies. The funny thing is so many people in sports look to business and other things for analogies. So I love what you're doing here. The the leaders that I love the most, I mean, I think Tony Dungy has to be one of them. I mean, a, a, a sincerely humble guy and a guy that stuck to his principles, and he knew when to walk away from what he was doing because it was too much. But I just love how he went about doing that. Now, that's not to say that his gentle style is the only one, but I just love who he is. You know, a, another guy I love is Eric Spolstra, who I know a little bit, and he uses our my stuff around teamwork. And he's such a humble learner. And he is coached teams that had LeBron James and and Wade and all these other guys. He's also coached totally under talented teams and he's coached them up. He's had great teams. He's had middling teams. He's had lower teams. He's still coaching and he just loves the process, loves the people. So he's another one of my favorites. So Eric Spolstra and Tony Dungy are two of those. Uh, Lou Holtz was a, a guy that I always thought was amazing. But as much as what kind of person he was, not just coaching.
1: You know, I'm going to follow you up on Eric Spolstra, because to me right now, he's the best coach in the NBA. I think, I think he's unbelievable for great? all the reasons you mentioned. You know, when you talk about Eric Spolstra, of course, you talk about that famous heat culture. Because you've worked with him, because he consumes your content, maybe you have even more insight. Like, How would you describe the heat culture or their culture? What makes it so unique and different from everybody else's? Well,
0: I would say, first of all, it's based in humility, and that is he does not think that he's the most important guy in the room. He cares about everybody in the organization, the players, the staff, the the trainers, and everybody else, and he thinks it's his job to actually lead all of them so that the whole place works together well as opposed to some coaches who think hey it's all about sports leave me alone I don't want to hear about any of this other stuff he actually looks at the whole organization you got to give Pat Riley for credit for that too and that he's still the coach there the other thing is team first it's not ego first and um that's why like this year what they did was just crazy they they have to play a play-in game to make it to the playoffs they have the most undrafted players on their team and they almost win the championship And that is because this guy is team first. He
1: himself is humble. It's not about him. That's what makes him, I think, like you said, maybe the best coach in the league. I think so. Now, Patrick, you mentioned principles. I want to ask you something. What is more important when leading a team? Is it hammering home policy and making sure that the team knows all the rules or should the leader of the group spend more time informing them of their principles or his or her principles?
0: Yeah. Principles and culture drive it, not policy and compliance. And, it's so much easier to lead when you have principles and you know what they are and you give people those those guardrails and then you tell them whatever you do, do choose your own way as long as you're within those principles, as opposed to coaching like with a joystick. Like when I coached little kids and they didn't know how to play the game, you'd have to tell them where to go and everything else. The best coaches don't overmanage. They give people the guardrails for what's acceptable and then they turn them loose and they keep them focused within those principles or that culture
1: all right so now you make the distinction between core values and accidental values what is the difference okay so a core value and people talk about values now in an organization
0: and they usually have a list of 10 things a core value is that two or three critical things like if you're going to play on this team or you're going to work in this organization here's the two or three qualities that you have to have or you're not going to love it we're not going to love you and it's not going to be a fit So those are things that are real and true. Accidental values are values that creep into an organization that aren't really intentional, but you look around one day and you realize, "Uh uh-oh, this is starting to invade our culture. I remember there was a time early in my company's history where all of us had kids and we had young kids. And suddenly everybody we hired had kids too. And we were like, why do we only hire people with little kids? And it was like, well, these are the only people we know. And we said, so we don't have any older employees. We don't have any younger people. We needed to guard against the culture that said one of our values was somehow being a parent because that was not one of our values, but it was starting to creep into the culture. and Everybody can look at their company and say, are we starting to act a certain way because we're getting used to the people we're with and we're reinforcing something that's not actually important, or are we doing this on
1: purpose? I love that, accidental values. It's like all of a sudden you wake up one day and this is one of the accidental values, which is becoming a core value. It's like, what about your company? What, if I were to ask you, what are two or three of your core values? What would you say?
0: Well, what's funny is we've had these core values for 27 years, although we've added one two years ago and we kind of restarted our company. And, but then what we realized is that there's something universal about them. And I wrote a book about it. So the three values at, at, at the table group where I, my company is humble, which means it's not about you. It's about the team hungry. It means I'll go above and beyond. I won't do the minimal and smart, but not intellectually smart, interpersonally smart, which means I have good judgment about people, you know, common sense about people. Then we added a new one recently because the world has changed and, and what we do has changed. And that's courage. You have to have the willingness to say the hard thing when you know it's right and it's good, even if you get punished for that. So at our company, we hire for this humble, hungry, interpersonally smart and courageous to have the courage of your convictions. Now I wrote a book about Humble, Hungry, and Smart because enough people saw it and they said, wait, that's teamwork. And so there are teams in sports and in in the corporate world who hire now for Humble, Hungry, Smart because it really, that is what makes up a team player. And my book was called The Ideal
1: Team Player and that one has pervaded the sports world. You know, it's so funny. You answered the question. I was going to say, you wrote a book called The Ideal Team Player in 2016. I was going to ask you, and not to be redundant because you just did answer it, but I was going to ask, what is the ideal team player, and has your notion of who or what of that has changed? Has it changed over time? That's wild. Like, you literally just answered that question. Yeah,
0: you know, because we, we realized if a person is not ego-driven, and if they're not lazy, and if they actually have a clue about how to talk to their teammates— They they fit on a team and there's players in the NFL that people have drafted. And they look back later and they said, oh, my gosh, if we would have used humble, hungry, smart. And Johnny Manziel is a great example. Like he he had none of those and they knew that. But his hands were bigger than Teddy Bridgewater's and he he was faster. And and they're like, well, let's take a flyer on him. And it's like, boy, if they don't have humble, hungry and smart and we're learning things now about. Right away after they drafted him, you know, Joe Thomas and these guys were like, we saw the problems right away. And what I encourage coaches to do when you draft players or trade for players, get to know whether or not it's ego, laziness or or interpersonally dumb. And don't touch those guys. There's enough good players out there who become great players because they have the right values. And so make that your standard to start
1: with. I was going to say, so what do you do when you have your company and you go to hire somebody? Can you teach these core values or if they don't already have them and they don't share them with you, do you just not hire them? Well, it's much better to hire people
0: that have them. I mean, it's it's easier because then you know what you're working with. But occasionally and people might be listening to this and go, well, I have employees. Oh, I have a few that might be lacking one of these. Yes, you can teach them, but what you have to do is you have to say, listen, these are really important, and I think this is the area you're lacking. And a great thing for leaders to say, and this is the area where I'm lacking, and I'm working on it, too, then everybody knows. Say, so let's coach each other. What can you do to become hungrier? Or what can you do to avoid those times when you're not humble? Or what can you do to get emotionally more aware? And then you coach each other around that, and yes, people can adopt these things if they don't have them some people can't because they have life experiences that make it too hard but i think generally people can but if they're lacking one of them in great measure it's really best to avoid it because you're going to end up spending most of your time on behavioral coaching and you're not going to really be getting them to perform
1: how do you make somebody hungrier? Like if they really don't want it, if they don't want it for themselves, they're not going to want it for the team or the company. How do you make somebody hungrier or want it more? I love this question. And, and sometimes you can't.
0: And of all the three, this one sometimes needs to be in, in developed early in life. Like you have to feel like you're, you want to be hungry, but here's, there's a few ways to go about it. You can say, are you hungry for the mission? Like, this is what we're trying to accomplish. And maybe a person is a little bit lazy, but you're like, we want to win the championship or we want to go public or whatever, or we want to accomplish this goal. And you can say, maybe the mission will get them out of their malaise. Or you can be hungry to please your teammates. Like, you don't want to let them down. And even though you might have a little bit of a lazy streak, the idea of your teammates going, you're not blocking, man, or you didn't run your leg of the relay or whatever else it is. So sometimes that'll do it. But if a person can't be motivated by letting not letting down their teammates or the mission then let them go someplace else where their level of hunger might be appropriate but if you keep them you're going to be hurting your own culture and lowering the standards of everybody else.
1: Yeah, Patrick, there's no way I would let you go without talking mindset. I want to ask you, how often do you work with people and see people who are suffering and suffering because of their perceived limitations and that story or that movie that they're running over and over again in their own minds, which becomes a really negative narrative, which may in fact might not be true and probably isn't true. How often do you run into that? Oh, all the time. I mean, and we're, most people are not even aware of they're
0: doing that. That's why John Gordon, who's one of my favorite people in the world, and he's, he, he wrote, just wrote a great book called The One Thing, he talks about this very thing. It's like we let things creep into our minds. And um, I think every human being in the world needs to be in a good therapy situation, which is really being coached around their attitude. and And bad therapy is really bad. But I think most people in the world need it to be reminded like what's true and what's real and what am I letting in and what's within my control. And so I think that every CEO, every coach, every athlete, every employee I meet with, there's probably the most successful ones are the ones that don't let themselves become victimized by things that they don't need to be worrying about. But it's so easy in the world to do that. More more now today than ever probably because of so many distractions, social media and everything
1: else. Well, and so much negativity. It's not hard to find. Oh, it's not hard it, to find. So if this is an issue and then your first step is just being aware that this is an issue and this is what's happening, but you don't have to believe it or accept it. Like how do you fix it? What's the process for fixing it or beginning to improve and fixing it? Okay. So I
0: can't do it, Jim, without God, without prayer. I'm a I'm a follower of Jesus. And so I have to pray every day to stay in the positive and in the good. Because you're right. The world is out there. And there's a, I believe in the devil. And he's out there saying, no, come to the negative stuff. Indulge in things that make you unhappy. And then you'll bring other people down. So I, for me, it's it's got to be faith. And and so a big part of that, though, is also silence. So if somebody is like not, it's like you got to spend time in silence and reflecting on what is true and what is good and think about those things. The other thing is relationship. Be with people who do that with you and don't be with people that are dragging you into the negative. And um, so those are the things that I think are most important. And that's how it works for me. And by the way, I'm going to tell you something. Jim. I love what you're doing. This is what you're doing right now in your career is going to be, is life changing for people. And I think that coming from you and who we, we all knew from sports and fun. And, and when, when all the shock shock radio came in and we loved that stuff, but for you to be doing what you're doing now, people are going to listen and i think i'm good for good on you for doing this listen patrick
1: for coming from you never mind coming from me coming from you that you just said that about me means the world to me i i really appreciate that very very much that was a really nice thing that you just said and you know, like you, well, not like you, but I, I mean this sincerely. I am on a mission, a mission of reinvention, and I'm searching and I want to get better and I want to learn. And I've always found this stuff to be really interesting. And I know our time here is short. I know there's more than ever before, and we need to be so intentional. Like we, we can't waste hours, much less days, and we have to be so focused on what we're doing. Can you go back to that point really quickly about silence? about silence like what does silence practically look like for you is it five minutes a day is it 15 minutes is it in the morning is it at night when and how do you use silence oh that's a great question i don't love discipline
0: my personality isn't like and there are some people that like live every day exactly the same and i envy them in many ways or I, i'd like to be more like that but my i'm a creative type and i'm kind of like bopping around and thinking about things so so the in in, in a in a perfect world it would probably be an hour every day. Does it have to be an hour in a row? I don't think so, but it certainly can't be three minutes. Although, if that's all you can do, start there. But what I have found is that every time I I make myself be in silence, I'll I'll leave there so grateful and think I'm going to do this every day. And then the next day, I'm like, no, I don't have time for that. I want to do this. I want to watch this. I want to get involved in this. So so I have this thing. I'm a Catholic. And there's a thing in the Catholic world called adoration, Eucharistic adoration. And it, the idea is you go into a room, it's totally silent, and there's the host. And I don't know if you're how you grew up, but the, the Jesus. And you just sit there for an hour in silence. And you're sitting there, and you're looking around, and there's these other people. There's not a a, a noise being made. And I'll just sit there on the floor, and I'll pray. I fall asleep sometimes. I'll just listen. And every time I leave there, I'm like, I'm a new man. Why don't I do this every day? It's because I'm a very flawed person who gets caught up in watching TV and reading everything I can and interacting with people. And so, if you can do it for five minutes a day, start there. I think that I think I'd like to get to the place where I do it an hour a day, and um, I don't think I would regret it. I don't think I'd say, "Man, I really missed that episode of whatever show my wife and I are watching." I think it, it makes me better. So. Oh, no, it's
1: so important. Five it, right? minutes
0: is a good start.
1: Yeah, I think I was going to say, sorry to interrupt you, it's, it's so important, right? And I think it's, you know, I got to the point where, you know, it used to be you are what you eat, but in reality, you are what you consume. It's not just what you eat, it's what you read, it's what you right. see, it's what you watch. You know, the point about silence, I, I agree with you. Yeah, it's so rejuvenating, and you have some of your best ideas and some of your best thoughts, and you start to kind of rewire your mind, hopefully. But I can remember back in the day, I used to work out with the Navy SEAL, a guy by the name of Richard Mackowitz. And before our workouts, there were like these kind of like martial arts training uh, workouts and a regimen. He would make me sit in strict silence, but think about nothing, think about nothing. And if, and for 15 minutes, and if I thought about something in particular and got hooked, he would make me start over. It was really hard to do. So when you're doing that, That's great. I, yeah, it was really something. So when you're doing that, are you just letting your mind go? Are you screening out the negative? Are you thinking about nothing or everything or something in between? Well, that's a great
0: question. Sometimes for me, like, so uh, there's a a prayer called the rosary. And then when you pray the rosary, you're saying these words over and over, the Hail Mary and the Our Father. But what it does is allows you to focus on, and I'm thinking about Jesus. Now, Other, sometimes it's really hard for me to sit in a quiet room and just be silent because I get distracted. So sometimes a little bit of distraction will allow me to focus better. So one man's trash is another man's treasure, and it, it might be different for different people. Sometimes going on a jog is a great way for silence because it occupies enough of your front of your brain to let it relax. Sometimes in the shower, my best ideas come in because I'm in there and I'll, I'll stand in there for 45 minutes. And my wife is like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm thinking I'm coming up with these ideas. So everybody has a different way to do it. Um, but 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 the key is when you get that distraction, don't beat yourself up. Just go let go of that and, and, and go back to that place of of nothing, You know, from a sports analogy here, there was a guy named Brian Sabian. I didn't know him, but he was the GM for the for the Giants. And people would walk by his office and he'd be sitting there at his office and there's nothing on his desk and there's a whiteboard in front of him and there's nothing on it. And he'd just be staring at it. And people would be like, what's that guy doing? He would just sit for an hour and just stare at the whiteboard and think,
1: you know, I, I've never heard that story. I used to have him on the show quite a bit. I, I He was intense, and I always enjoy talking to right. him. I've never heard that anecdote. That's really interesting. So before you leave us, here's something. I mean, we're talking about leadership. We're talking about teamwork. I think fact of the matter is a lot of people don't necessarily see it this way. But the fact is, the fir- we've all been on teams, even if we didn't play sports. And the first yep. team that we were all a part of, of course, was the family. So how can these techniques and these action steps that we've been discussing be used to help- help a family operate as a more highly functioning team. I love that. You know,
0: so many times I've worked with companies and the executives or the leaders that I've worked with have gone home and said, I need to apply this to my most important family. Cause we, one of the bad things about families is we take them for granted. And know, we go to work and we have offsite meetings and we're intentional and we give people feedback and then we go home and we just kind of wing it. And, and I think that's a tragedy. Because the family is the most important thing. And we need to understand. And boy, my wife and I had a huge epiphany this year. When I figured out this working genius thing, I realized, she realized what her working genius was. And after she read the book, Jim, she turned to me we were on an airplane. I said, what'd you think? She goes, I loved it and I'm pissed. Mm. She said, I've been living outside of my genius for so long and I didn't even realize it. And I was like, oh no, I didn't realize it either. And I wasn't appreciative enough of the fact that you took one for the team for a long time because we didn't even understand what that meant and so the more we can understand our family members and their working geniuses i'm i can manage my kids and and, and parent my kids better because i know how they're wired but too often we just think well this is my spouse this is these are my kids and i just have to show up every day and so i think we need to be more intentional and actually look at our families like teams and like our team number one.
1: I mean, it's all so interesting, and we talked about finding your genius. I mean, what an amazing conversation. So I appreciate, Patrick, that you made as much time for this as you did, but this is merely the tip of the iceberg. If our listeners want more information about you and the latest book or to take advantage of many of the varied services and opportunities you have, where should I direct them to? So
0: I, there, my website is tablegroup.com. That's the name of my company, table The Table Group. But we, we do the Working Genius Podcast. I have another one, where it's, which is what you'd like. It's a very liberal arts podcast about the world of work. But it's way more than just business. It's about interaction and people. And it's called At the Table. So At the Table with Patrick Lincioni, And we talk about anything related to work and how it impacts our life. So that's another thing I do once
1: a week. Hey, so really quickly, since you brought that up, How should we view it? Like I'm old school, work, 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 work. And then there's folks who are saying, man, why do you you have to have that life balance? You can't grind. You can't battle. You can't work like that. It's not healthy. It's not even smart. How should we think about and approach work in 2023? Oh, I love this. So so first of all, if you're working in your genius,
0: work will not burn you out. It will give you energy and joy. Mm. People think that working less is how to have a better life. And if you're doing work that you hate, then yeah, that might be true. It doesn't actually work that way. So don't worry about overwork in the sense of if you're doing something you love, but integrate it into your life. So, so if you're, I like to say, um, I'm, at, I'm at today. I'm at this company in Texas called Leader L E A D R, and they have this thing that says we want you to be just as happy on Monday morning as you are on Friday. I mean, Monday morning as you are on Friday night. We want you to be excited to be at work, but we want you to be excited to go home. And that means you're doing what you love. Now, if people are overworking because they're trying to get away from the the difficulties in their personal life, that's where burnout comes in. And and I don't believe in that. But if you love what you do, integrate it into your life. And work-life balance is more about increasing the joy For yourself and your family and the people you work with it's not just about regulating the hours i think there are people that work 12 hours a day and they have a great life and there's people that work four hours a day and they're pretty miserable
1: so that's kind of my thinking i love it's so powerful so my final final thought patrick the energy that i'm feeling from you does this come from your purpose your mission your faith are you a workout guy is it nutrition we and energy's everything and we all want more of it where are you pulling yours from? Yeah, so faith first and and foremost. I mean, and I, I've learned that
0: later in life, Jim. I mean, I was always part of, that was always in my life, but I didn't understand the centrality of it and understand what it meant to be loved by God until I got older. I had to deal with some things in my life. And then family is so important. But but the the, the friends I have, both at work and in other places, that is like my extended family. And I and it all of that goes together. Do I do I exercise? Yes. I love to play sports. I'm getting a little older and my hips don't let me do the same things I used to. So I work out now to take care of my body, which sucks because I really liked it better when I could just go play hoops and I would take care of my body that way. So I do all those other things. I try to eat well and all of this, but it's faith, family, and friends that are to me the
1: the 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 the, the primary focus. I lied. I lied. I lied. See, here's the problem. When you say interesting things as an interviewer, it is my job to follow them. So I really do promise this will be the last one, but you mentioned friends. Oh, no.
0: I love this. This this is, this is
1: great. Like you... As somebody who's running a company, who's traveling, like you said, you're in Texas right now, friends. You're energized by your friends. What what does that look like? I mean, do you find, like, you want to be there for your family. You want to be there for your spouse. You want to be there. But how do you find the time for your friends? And how do you spend that time with your friends? How do you pull that energy from your friends? What does your social life look like? Well, this this is a particularly
0: interesting question because for years I have four boys. It was just with wow. chasing the boys around, yeah. and my wife would tell you too it, it was our boys ahead of our marriage because you know like we're so busy. Today my kids are older. I have one left in high school, and so they don't need me like they used to, which kind of sucks, but it's kind of important. And so I'm really re nurturing friendships, and my wife and I are starting to do different things together, which is wonderful. But one of the things I found is. If you hire well and you take care of and love the people you work with, all of my friends don't work with me, but the people that work for me, I spend, I spend 45 hours a week with them. And I love being with them. And so when I come home from work, my wife will say, you get to spend time with your friends because you love the fact that you get to work with them. And it is true. Now, I have friends outside of work, too. Guys are terrible at nurturing friendships outside of work. And that's one of the things I wish I had done differently. I would tell my sons, you got to go do that. But um, I'm really glad now that at least I work in an environment. Some people work in a place where they pull up and they see the cars in the parking lot and they're just like, oh, no. And we've been fortunate in my small company to be able to surround ourselves by people we just love to be with.
1: Yeah, I feel the same way. We, My crew is small and it's tight. But from day one, when somebody walks in, I talk about whether or not, I mean, there's a culture, there's a work ethic, there's a standard. But I said, look, this is a very small, confined space. We need to be harmonious. That doesn't mean that you tell me what you think I want to hear. I want you to tell me what I need to hear. But we all have to get along. We can't have toxicity. We can't have negative energy. It's just not going to work. We have to like each other and certainly respect each other. Patrick, that, that was a tremendous conversation. I appreciate you. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your insight. And I'm so glad you and I finally came together like that. I am too,
0: Jim. After listening to you all these years, this has been a treat. So I, I appreciate you having me and God bless you.
1: So Patrick has been doing this at a very high level for a very long time, and he just keeps getting better and better. And I couldn't be more appreciative of him making this much time for us here on The Reinvention Project. I hope you guys as much out of that as I did. If so, or if you've got any further questions, absolutely reach out to Patrick. I'm sure he would love to hear from you. In the meantime, if you like what you hear here, please feel free to share the pod, subscribe to the pod, and review the pod as I'm in this for the long haul. As always, thanks so much again for listening, and I will catch you next time right here on The Reinvention Project with Jim Rome.